Well, greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mullet. You can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. You can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can subscribe to the channel there. You can also find us on iTunes. Uh, just search for Logical Belief uh, and subscribe to our channel there from your favorite podcast catcher. You can uh, drop me a question or a word of encouragement, uh, and you, uh, you can send those emails to jason at logicalbelief.org. Um, Alrighty, well last week we didn't do a podcast and that was due to the fact that um, I was uh, doing some teaching at our church and so this week what I'm actually doing, um, it's a lot of work getting all these podcasts together all the time and so what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to take the recording for my presentation that I did at church last week and I'm going to play that today along with the slide presentation that I accompanied with that. So uh, those of you that have seen some previous episodes of mine on presuppositional apologetics, you will recognize a lot of this material. Uh, but those of you who have not or newer listeners, um, this uh, will hopefully be a blessing to you. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, but before we jump into that, let's hear a word from Striving for Eternity Ministries. Mark your calendar. Jersey Fire is July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. The topic, the Word of God. The speakers, Matt Slick from Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Justin Peters from Justin Peters Ministry, and Andrew Rappaport from Striving for Eternity. Jersey Fire will equip you to talk to the lost and then put what you learn into practice with guidance and support from seasoned evangelists. Jersey Fire, July 8th and 9th in Toms River, New Jersey. For details, go to jerseyfire.org. Alrighty. Well, uh, just a reminder, uh, this is going to be the last week we're going to do this drawing. <clears throat> we are going to be giving away the ultimate proof of creation to uh, everyone who uh, writes a review on the iTunes feed, on the iTunes channel. Uh, you can uh, go to iTunes and write a review of the podcast by uh, going to podcast in the top menu bar of the website, uh, just click on iTunes there on that podcast page, the iTunes link, that'll take you to the page where you can uh, write the review. If you're using um, a podcasting uh, application, a podcatcher application, you just open up that application and you go to the feed. should give you the option to write a review. If you write a review, you will be eligible to win this book. Uh, so far, there's two of you that have done it. So right now, you guys have an opportunity, one and two, <laughs> to win this. Um, somebody else wants to jump in on that. I will be doing the drawing next week, and then I will be sending this out to the winner. And that is The Ultimate Proof of Creation by uh, Dr. Jason Lyell. And uh, as you actually see the presentation that I'm going to be doing today, um, or that I did at church last week, uh, you'll see that some of the graphics that I use in that are from Jason Lyle's book, which I have used with permission from him directly. Um, so without further ado, we're just going to go ahead and jump into um, the presentation that I did last week. So I'm going to I'm going to actually be doing the slide presentation here on the show. So if you're watching it on YouTube, you'll actually see the slides that I did use um, at church last week. And I will also be providing the slides in PDF format, as always, whenever I do presentations, um, on the show notes on the website, logicalbelief.org. If you go to, to the podcast um, post, and you'll see the link there to the PDF for the presentation, So, if you're interested in that. So, as always, 
Uh, if any of you guys uh, are, are interested in doing these things at your churches or wherever, uh, you are welcome to use my material uh, to help uh, present this. Uh, you don't even need permission from me for that. Uh, I just want the uh, these messages to get out, and it's all for the glory of God. So um, you don't even have to credit me if you want to use some of my graphics and uh, my presentations. That is absolutely fine. So I'm going to go ahead and switch it to the screen, and uh, we're going to go ahead and kick this off. Here we go. <coughs> Already, um, what I'm going to be talking about today is uh, <clears throat> a topic that's <coughs> near and dear to my heart, and this is uh, evangelism and apologetics. And uh, today I'm going to be focusing mostly on the apologetic aspect of that. Um, our evangelism and our apologetics should never be um, separated from one another. Uh, an apologetic without a proclamation of the gospel is uh, something that is really only rooted in pride and um, a evangelistic method without providing a defense of the faith is not is not a complete biblical presentation of the gospel so we need to have these things joined together so today I'm going to be talking about something uh, what I call the biblical uh, apologetic and then it's uh, a kind of a big word there presuppositional apologetics uh, and I'll go into why we use that term but um, as you'll learn that presuppositional apologetics, while it may have a big name, um, it's actually uh, a much easier method for Christians to defend uh, the reason for the hope that is within us. But uh, we do, however, have to put our thinking caps on because we're going to be using some, maybe some vocabulary and words maybe you're not as familiar with this morning um, as we get into this. So the first thing we want to look at is the biblical mandate for providing an apologetic. And this is in a verse which I'm sure you guys are all familiar with, but this is 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Um, it's very interesting um, that Peter here, when he uses honor Christ the Lord as holy, He's actually borrowing from a passage in Isaiah which says, honor Yahweh, or honor the Lord as holy. But here he puts Jesus Christ in, that, um, in this verse here. Always being prepared to make a defense. The Greek word behind the word defense there is apologia, which is where we get our word apologetic. Uh, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So apologetics is not um, us going around and apologizing to people for our Christian faith. Instead, it is providing a reasoned defense of the Christian faith. So the first thing we have to look at, is the Christian faith blind? Uh, often the Christian faith is represented that way, um, as Phil Johnson said, that the Christian faith is sometimes represented as an absurd hope in an unseen and unknowable delusion. Well, that's not the Christian faith as described in the Bible. The Bible describes our Christian faith, and I like this particular translation of Hebrews 11, verse 1. This is from the 1984 version of the NIV. It says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for 
and certain of what we do not see. Um, in the ESV, <clears throat> it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things seen. The reason I like the NIV translation is because in apologetics, and engaging and talking to people that don't believe in Christianity, um, especially from an atheistic perspective, um, certainty is something that comes up a lot, the word certainty. <clears throat> so it's the, actually the unbeliever is the one who has blind faith, uh, especially from the atheistic perspective. He actually believes in fairy tales. He believes that a frog turned into a prince, and he believes that fish became philosophers. So it's actually the unbeliever, the atheistic worldview, that is actually the one who uh, believes in fairy tales. So presuppositional apologetics <coughs> comes from the term, uh, well, we, we put in here presuppositions. Uh, presuppositions are the basic beliefs and assumptions that we all bring to bear before we examine or rationalize on anything. So none of us come to any particular evidence neutral. We have things that we already believe before we come to evidence. Before we examine anything, every single human being, every single image bearer of God has a set of presuppositions, things that he believes before he looks and examines anything. And then apologetics giving a reason defense for the faith. So that's where we get... Um, <coughs> The, the term presuppositional apologetics. So every single human being has a worldview. And this is a network of presuppositions that people bring to the table before they look at things. So everybody looks at the world through a particular view. Now I've had people say, well, I don't have a worldview. I, I come to the evidence completely neutral with an open mind. Well, they're describing a worldview. They think they need to come to all the evidence with an open mind. That is, in a that is a worldview in itself. It's a rather poor one. If your mind's too open, your brain will fall out. But um, <clears throat> So we as Christians <coughs> look at God's, we look at the world through biblical glasses. We have a biblical worldview, and the unbeliever, uh, begins with a presupposition or a belief that man is the one who is the ultimate authority and man is the one who decides. And so um, we have to go to the presuppositions and we have to examine the presuppositions when discussing worldviews. So everyone has an ultimate authority. Every single human being has an ultimate authority that he appeals to. As Christians, we appeal to the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible justifies things like the laws of logic, uh, things like morality, objective morality, and uniformity of nature. We'll talk about uniformity here in a little bit. But um, so <clears throat> all ultimate authorities are circular, meaning, for example, there is nothing outside of God that justifies God. Um, a theological term would be God has a saity. He is not contingent upon anything outside of himself. He's wholly self-sufficient. Um, so, therefore, there is nothing outside of God to justify him. So, God is a virtuous circle. For example, in Exodus 3.14, uh, God tells Moses, I am that I am. And this is a proclamation of his 
um, self-sufficiency and non-contingency. Um, if we take out God as the ultimate authority and we deny that, what we're left with is man becomes the ultimate authority and we end up with the absurd conclusion that man is the source of the laws of logic, objective morality, and even the most absurd one, that he's the source of the uniformity of nature. We can't account for nature being uniform and uh, laws of physics and nature uh, going into the future as they have been in the past. We, can't, we don't have any justification for that if we don't appeal to the God of the Bible. Now we're end up, we end up with a viciously circular system. We end up with, uh, what's the current population of the world? Over seven billion. We end up with seven billion ultimate authorities running around the planet, right? <clears throat> so an example of an ultimate authority is the Meter Day Archive. Anybody ever heard of that before? Um, by the way, if anybody has a question as we go through this, just feel free to raise your hand. I'll take time for questions at the end, but if you have any questions, let me know. Um, the Meter Day Archive is the, it's a, um, uh, platinum uh, stick, I guess, that defines the length of what a meter actually is. It's located in Paris, France, and it is the ultimate authority for the length of a meter. Um, so all other meter sticks need to appeal to the authority of the meter de archive as the justification for the fact that they are, in fact, a meter in length. If a meter stick appeals to itself as the justification for the fact that it is indeed a meter in length, it would be viciously circular. Okay, So if you go to a hardware store and you ask them, how do you know that's uh, actually a meter, that meter stick sitting there? Um, and the guy said, well, um, it justifies itself. It's just, it's a meter stick. Well, he has to compare it to an ultimate authority. Um, <clears throat> and so if it matches up with the ultimate standard, it is actually, in fact, a meter in length. The meter, the archive can appeal to itself as the actual standard of what is a meter, and this would be virtuously circular. <coughs> so it's not about the evidence. This is why, <coughs> as presuppositionalists, there's really two camps when it comes to Christian apologetics. There's presuppositional apologetics, and then you have evidential and classical apologetics. Classical is kind of midstream between evidential and presuppositional, but evidential apologetics attempts to take evidence and give it to the unbeliever uh, to prove what I believe the Bible says he already knows. The Bible says he already knows that God exists. So we all have the same evidence. We simply just look at the evidence through different worldviews, through different glasses. We all interpret the evidence with our worldview, and the question really is, this is the real question, is which worldview makes the human experience intelligible? Which worldview actually makes sense of the world? Actually has a rational, coherent worldview? What you'll encounter when you're doing apologetics or speaking to anyone about um, evidence, whenever somebody encounters evidence that would appear to be contrary to their worldview, they'll employ something called a rescuing device, and I'll, I'll demonstrate this. And this is somebody simply um, holding to their presuppositions and not letting it go. 
So let's say, for example, I would go up to an unbelieving um, scientist and I would say, why are there still comets in the solar system if comets typically do not last more than 10,000 years? So comets orbit the sun, and every time they pass, they lose material. And since they're, uh, they're always losing material as they pass the sun, uh, they can't last more than about most even secular scientists would agree that comets don't last more than 10,000 years. So the question would be is why do we still have comets in our solar system if it is 4.5 billion years old? Well, they'll say there's an Oort cloud. Okay? So a scientist will say that, well, there's this cloud of, of um, ice balls out beyond the edges of the solar system uh, that we can't observe. And maybe when a passing star or some other body that has a large gravitational force, it'll kick some of them into the inner solar system and create comets. So you'll ask them, have you ever observed the Oort cloud? No. Do you have any evidence for the Oort cloud? Well, you don't have any evidence that it doesn't exist. So that's what you call a rescuing device. So you'll see in scientific literature, they'll say, well, there's a such thing as an Oort cloud. Well, they don't really have any evidence for it. They just have to believe it's there to account for comets. You could ask for, here's another scientific question. Why is there still carbon-14 found, found in dinosaur bones and, di um, and diamonds? Uh, carbon-14 is um, <clears throat> a radioactive isotope that breaks down uh, into, back into nitrogen. And if the entire Earth was made up of C14, the entire mass of the Earth was made up of C14. In less than one million years, it would have all decayed back to nitrogen. So anything that has C14 in it is limited by the fact that it cannot be older than that. There's no possibility. So why do we find C14s in things like dinosaur bones, which they say are 70 million years um, old, and uh, diamonds, which they say are billions of years old? How do you find things like C14 in it? Well, they'll say, well, maybe there's some sort of contamination that we still haven't discovered. It's called a rescuing device. He's going to hold to his worldview. So um, you could ask the simple question, how do random molecules organize themselves into a self-replicating organism, the first life? How does that happen? Well, as Richard Dawkins said in the documentary Expelled, aliens did it. Okay, that doesn't really help, but that is a rescuing device. So we as Christians maybe have to employ rescuing devices also. Some atheist might ask us, or secular scientists might ask us, how can the Earth be 6,000 years old if we can see galaxies millions of light years away? Well, we have to employ several theories on our own to, um, to try to resolve that issue. We have uh, Dr. Russell Humphreys, I like his, I've read his book on it, called the White Hole Cosmology Theory. And then you also have uh, Dr. Jason Lyell. He's another Christian uh, scientist who has something called, uh, uh, called the Anisotropic Synchrony Convention. You can ask me afterwards what that is. But it's a solution possibly to, this, uh, to the light problem. The point of all these things is that it's not about the evidence, right? Everybody has a rescuing device to try to rescue their worldview from evidence that would appear to be contrary from it. So is it going to be helpful to sit down with an unbeliever and talk to him about C14? Is it going to be helpful to discuss with the unbeliever about comets in the solar system? 
I find these things interesting as a Christian, but they're not the way that I do apologetics. I don't go to an unbeliever and explain to him about how complex the I is and therefore God. We need to examine his presuppositions that he brings to the table. So we have what's called the pretended neutrality fallacy. Uh, people claiming that they're neutral. And the unbeliever will say, well, you need to abandon the Bible because I don't believe that. You need to abandon the Bible. You need to come over into my worldview without the Bible. And then maybe we'll work and see if we can conclude, therefore, God exists. Well, Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 1 that they already know that God exists. So if I go over into his neutral ground, and I say, yes, you're right, you don't know that God exists, let's go ahead and let's look at examine evidence and see if we can conclude that therefore God exists. Did I just abandon my authority? I just let it go. I abandoned my ultimate authority. And I said, what God says about him is not true, and what he says about himself is true, and I'm going to go over into his territory, and I'm going to, um, I am going to try to prove to him that God exists. Notice what the secularist says. Once you go over into his neutral territory, he says, I'm done. The argument's over. You've abandoned your ultimate authority. So the thing is, is there is no neutral ground. What does Jesus say? Does Jesus say there's neutral ground? Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So those who are not with Christ are actually actively working against Christ. They are not neutral. Romans 8, verse 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Does it say it's neutral to God? No, it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. To be neutral to our Creator, in fact, is a sin. So even to claim to be neutral in itself is a rebellion against God. The unbeliever is not neutral. You should not pretend to be neutral either. Accepting the pretended neutrality claim and attempting to convince the unbeliever of the probable existence of God is making the unbeliever the judge and jury over the God who created him. Where do we typically see evidence presented? In a court of law, right? The uh, defense and the prosecuting attorney presenting evidence and the jury and the judge making a decision, right? So if we're presenting evidence to the unbeliever, who's the, who's the one sitting in the docket being judged? God, right? So we do not put God to the test. Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What does the Bible say about the unbeliever? It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Uh, one of the things that really bothers me is every time an apologist says that um, 
this atheist has honest objections to the Christian faith. Well, if he has honest objections to the Christian faith, then God would be unjust to judge him, right? But he doesn't have honest objections to the Christian faith. He does know that God exists. It's plain to them because what does it say? God has made it plain to him. God has given us wonderful evidence, and we could likely acquit God in a trial. But even if we win, the unbeliever is still the judge and jury over the God who created him, right? Man's problem with God is not intellectual, but it's moral. What does it say in Psalm 14.1? It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So what do we do? Does the Bible give us any sort of um, insight in how to address those who deny his existence or don't humbly bow the knee to Jesus Christ? In Proverbs 26, verse 4, it says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, it's interesting in almost all the atheist websites out there that exist that claim contradictions in the Bible, they don't ever point this one out. I don't know why, but if you would look at it on its surface, you would say, well, that's a contradiction, isn't it? Answer not a fool according to his folly, and then answer a fool according to his folly? What's going on here? Well, what Solomon is telling us here is we should not accept the fools, the unbelievers, um, claims about himself in his own worldview and jump into his own worldview. If we do that, we become like him. Um, but instead, what we do is we do the second verse. We show him where his worldview logically takes him uh, and what the result actually is if his worldview were true. And we'll look at that here in a little bit. Typically, this presentation has taken me about an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, Judy. Now, if you actually listen, I have a podcast where I've talked to some atheists before, and um, I, I've quoted that verse to them, the fool says in his heart, and I said, now, I'm not, not calling you a fool as in, like, Mr. T, you the fool, you know, we're not, we're not doing that. What, what we're doing is God has said that your denial of him is foolish. It means it's, um, it doesn't make any sense, and that's what that means when it says, we're not calling the unbeliever names. We're simply saying that he is denying what is plain to him. And so that's what we mean by fool. Um, in Romans 1.22, Paul uses the same term, claiming to be wise, uh, they became fools. In 1 Corinthians 1, or chapter 1, verse 20, Paul here says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? <clears throat> Remember, if it were not for God's grace, we would be the fools like the unbeliever. And that is what we have to remember. Now, 1 Corinthians 
4 verse 7 is one of these verses that reminds us of this. What do you have that you did not receive? So that is a thing that we have to remember. <clears throat> the unbeliever <coughs> is suppressing what he knows about God. And Dr. Greg Bonson um, uh, used the analogy of somebody in a swimming pool trying to keep uh, a beach ball pressed down. Anybody ever do that in a swimming pool? You have to actively work to keep that beach ball under, under the water, right? Well, the unbeliever actually has to do that. He has to actively suppress what he knows about God daily. On an ongoing basis, he has to actually actively suppress that truth. He has to push it down. He has to exert effort in order to suppress what he knows about God. When somebody becomes a Christian, they don't go from suppression, uh, or they don't go from not knowing that God exists to, hey, what do you know? God does exist. No. What they do is they go to profession of what they already knew. Um, <clears throat> so, the biblical Christian worldview is the only worldview that provides a foundation and justification for our basic presuppositions, like the laws of logic, uniformity, and morality. Notice, with the Christian over here standing on God's word, he believes there are such things as laws of logic, like the law of excluded middle, the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity. He, he believes in these things. We, we all use these things on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis. Um, <coughs> the unbeliever does, too. He believes in the law of non-contradiction. He doesn't believe contradictions can be true. Um, in fact, he will try to examine the Christian worldview to see if it has contradictions in it, therefore to falsify it. But how does he justify an absolute, invariant, unchangeable, universal law that says contradictions are always false? If there is not a universal, invariant, unchangeable, transcendent lawgiver. And God's word gives us the justification for this. God's word gives us the justification for nature being uniform. And absolute morality, and we'll get into some of those verses here in a little bit. For someone to argue against the Christian worldview, they have to borrow presuppositions from the Christian worldview to argue against it. They have to borrow capital. They're using borrowed capital to argue against the Christian worldview. This is a graphic I put together. Um, we see here that the triune God of the Bible and his revelation gives us purpose, meaning, Objective morality, uniformity of nature, rationality, human value, human dignity, universal laws, objective truth, and consciousness. These are all justified within the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview has a purpose. The Creator has a purpose for all things. Isaiah 4610. Um, I am. Yahweh, I am God. I declare the end from the beginning. I will accomplish all my purpose. Uh, Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has created everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. Meaning. There is meaning because all things were created for Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, uh, 16. And Psalm 139, 16. Objective morality. <coughs> God has given to all people what they ought to do. In Romans 2, verse 
15, it says that the works of the law are written upon their heart. Uniformity. God holds and maintains all things. In Hebrews 1, 3, we learn that Jesus Christ sustains everything by the word of his power, right? He holds everything together. In Genesis 8, 22, it says seed time and harvest will not end until God brings it to an end, consummation at the end. It will continue. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, it says that he has fixed um, the laws of the heavens and the earth. Rationality. Man is created in the image of God with noetic ability, the ability to reason. Um, Genesis 5, 1 and 2 tells us we are made in the image of God. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet. They shall be white as snow. So God has given man the ability to reason. So our ability to reason is justified by being created in the image of God. You ask an unbeliever, um, how he knows his reasoning is valid. Um, he will have to say, well, you know, I took a test um, a week ago, and I did pretty good on it. So, you know, I think my reasoning is valid. Well, did you have to use your reasoning to take that test? And did you have to use your reasoning to remember that you took that test? So are you, are you using your reasoning to validate your reasoning? Isn't that circular? Um, and so that's the problem he's left with. He can't justify his ability to reason without using his reasoning. Now, we as Christians, we can appeal to something outside of ourselves, an objective source outside of ourselves for why we have an ability to reason. And our reasoning should be checked up against the word of God, what he has revealed to us, in order for us to justify. Before you move on, let me know. Uh, noetic is just uh, um, the mind's ability to think and reason. That's what noetic ability is. Um, human value. Man is of value because he is an image bearer of God. In Genesis 9, verse 6, this is right after the Noah's flood, um, God told Noah that anyone who takes man or, or strikes man and takes man's blood his blood shall be accounted for him because he is in the image of God. So human beings have value. Within the unbeliever's worldview, there's no difference between broccoli and a human being. They're both evolved, right? Um, as one apologist says, the unbelieving worldview <coughs> concludes that we are just uh, protoplasm meat bags bouncing on the surface of the cosmos. That's all we are. Who cares? We're just bags of stardust. I, in talking to an atheist friend of mine one time, um, he was, because all most atheists believe in human value and dignity to some level, right? Even though they can't justify it. And he was objecting to some <sighs> heinous things going on. I said, well, why would you object to that as an atheist? I said, I said, you know, have you ever, you, you think that we're just stardust, right? Yeah, yeah, we're just stardust. Okay. I said, when you see, uh, look through a telescope and you see one star colliding into another star, you don't say, well, that, that star is evil. Uh, it's doing something morally objectionable. So why do you say that when one bag of stardust over here wipes out another bag of stardust, why does that matter? They don't have any reason for why they actually value human life. And you know, as you can always see in our society, 
when we go away from God, what happens? Hum, uh, human beings are devalued, and we do things like kill our children. <coughs> uh, human dignity. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus repeats this in the Gospels as <coughs> fulfilling the second table of the Ten Commandments. <coughs> Universal laws <coughs> can be justified within the Christian worldview. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. He upholds all things by the word of his power, which is Hebrews 1-2. Um, in Psalm 139, uh, 7 and 10, it talks about wherever I go, whether I go down to hell or whether I go the depths of the sea, you are there. God is everywhere. So he is able to uphold the universe by the word of his power. Objective truth. Jesus didn't say that he speaks the truth. He said that he is the truth. All wisdom and knowledge are found in him. Colossians 2, 1 through um, 2, verses 2 and 3 say all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. All. Proverbs uh, 1, 7, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Consciousness, we have self-awareness in consciousness because we have been created by and are in the image of God who has self-existence. Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. If we are simply molecules bouncing together, you don't get consciousness from random molecules. The non-Christian worldview ends up with no purpose, no meaning, no objective morality, no human value, and we'll go through each one of these here. Purpose, there's no purpose, we're cosmic accidents. Meaning, there's no meaning to life. We die and return to the dust. Objective morality, there's no objective lawgiver. We only have our subjective preferences. <clears throat> uniformity, uniformity cannot be justified without begging the question. Okay, this is, typically when I do this presentation, I do uh, a, a series of a whole bunch of slides on logical fallacies. I just don't have time to do that uh, this morning. Um, what time are we usually supposed to end this by? Quarter after. Um, so begging the question is uh, a logical fallacy where um, you assume your conclusion. Uh, I can give you an example. Uh, let's say I asked uh, Kevin back here why he has $20. And he goes, well, I have $20 because I have a $20 bill in my wallet. Okay, he's begging the question. His answer assumes what I was asking him to justify. I was asking him why he has that in his wallet. Um, so. The unbeliever, when you ask them, why is nature uniform? Why, for example, the uniformity of nature is the foundational assum assumption to all of science. You can't do science if you don't assume the uniformity of nature. Um, uniformity of nature means that I believe, for example, the law of gravity will still be the same tomorrow as it is today. So when I drop a ball, I expect it to accelerate at the same rate at uh, which it, and tomorrow it'll do the same thing. Um, <clears throat> the unbeliever, however, if you ask him why nature is uniform, he will have to say that, well, it's just always been that way in the past. Well, that is to beg the very question being asked. The question he's being asked is why do you expect it to be that way in the future? Very famous atheistic philosopher David Hume actually acknowledged 
that um, the scientific community had no justification for why they believed in uniformity of nature because ultimately they had to beg the question. Now the Christian has a justification. We know why nature is uniform because God upholds the universe. Rationality. We as Christians <coughs> have a reason for rationality. The unbeliever does not. Reasoning cannot be justified with anything but reasoning, a circular argument, which I talked about earlier. Human value. There's no value to human life. We are no more, we have no more value than broccoli. Human dignity. There's no more dignity and respect owed to a human being than to a rock. The non-Christian worldview cannot justify universal laws like the laws of logic. There are no universal laws like the laws of logic. If the universe is only material, where do they get immaterial, universal, invariant laws like the laws of logic? What I've typically had atheists do in discussions with them, they'll say, well, the laws of logic are just properties of the universe. Okay? Well, properties can always be measured. Um, I can't weigh the laws of logic. I can't measure them with a yardstick. Um, <clears throat> they are immaterial. Has anybody ever stubbed your toe on a law of logic? Never done that? Okay. They're immaterial. They're not made of matter. <coughs> they're universal. We expect, look at a most distant star through a telescope or a galaxy, we don't expect that it can both be there and not be there at the same time in the same place, right? So they're universal. <coughs> they're invariant um, <coughs> laws. They're invariant, meaning they don't change. So the laws of logic apply back when I was born in 81, just as much as they do today. And they applied back in the time of Christ, just as much as they do today. So they're unchanging. Uh, objective truth. Actually, I want to jump back to that. I was, uh, um, usually I go through a practical section where I talk about some discussions I've had with atheists, but um, the, one of the best arguments to use with an atheist is to ask him if he has omniscience. Now, recently in talking to one, he said that only on Tuesday. He was just omniscient on Tuesday. But, um, so, <laughs> but uh, ask him if they're omniscient. And if they say they're not, well, in the knowledge that you don't possess, for example, you say that the laws of logic are absolute, that the law of non-contradiction, for example, you object to the Bible because you say it has contradictions in it. Well, how do you know contradictions are always false? Have you ever tried every instance of the law of non-contradiction? Um, do you have omniscient knowledge? Because um, to actually know something to be absolute and certain, you would have to have omniscience. You'd have to know everything. Because in the knowledge that you don't possess, if you don't have omniscience, in the knowledge that you do not possess, you could come across a fact that would contradict what you think you know to be true, correct? So then it logically follows that you cannot be certain about anything at all. And most atheists will tell you they cannot be certain about anything at all. And the obvious follow-up question to that is, are you certain about that? Um, <clears throat> so there's only two possibilities. Either the way that we know things to be certain and absolute is because we ourselves are omniscient or there's only one other option. There is one who is omniscient who has revealed things to us so that we can know them to be certain. And that is why all of us as image bearers of God 
do know things to be certain. Objective truth. How can objective truth be justified without an omniscient giver of objective truth? How does matter develop self-awareness and consciousness? So what ends up happening is the non-Christian worldview ends up not being able to justify all these things. So what do they do? They simply borrow them from us. They borrow all these things from us and they use them. They borrow from the Christian worldview. So the proof that God exists is that without him you could not prove anything at all. Without God we could not know anything at all. The impossibility to the contrary. It is actually impossible for God to not exist. We could not even formulate a proof for God if God did not exist to uphold laws of logic in order to create proofs. So that's it. Uh, that's all I have for this. It's almost time. Is there any questions? Yeah. The reason that we do an apologetic is to glorify God. Um, we provide a defense for the faith to bring honor and glory to God because he has revealed truth and the Christian worldview is the most robust, uh, sound worldview there is because it's the only one that's true. And uh, so when we provide a biblical apologetic for the faith, we do so to glorify God, not for the uh, purpose of convincing the unbeliever. Yeah, ultimately, in order to have a true biblical apologetic, you have to presuppose the true God of Scripture. You have to presuppose his infinite nature. You have to presuppose his eternality. You have to presuppose all of his attributes. Whenever you, uh, for example, when some, like we talked about aseity earlier, um, when somebody denies that God is not self um, sufficient when somebody denies that it ends up affecting their apologetic it ends up uh, proclaiming the gospel differently for example they'll say that God's love for example is dependent upon something you do right they'll proclaim the gospel differently so it's very important for us to have um, I call it a theocentric versus anthropocentric Apologetic, and that simply means a God-centered versus man-centered apologetic. Are we going to focus on man and his abilities, or are we going to focus on who God is and what he is um, as our starting point? Any other questions? Just a comment. Yeah. When I was in high school, the number of years they were using were thousands of years. Yeah. And when I got to college, it was hundreds of thousands of years. Now it's millions and billions of years. Yeah. And they can keep adding the numbers, but it doesn't change the fact. It doesn't. Absolutely does not. <laughs>
Anything else? I think that's about time. So, okay. Well, thank you guys. Alrighty. Well, hopefully that was helpful to you. Um, that is it. Just a reminder: uh, sign up for the drawing, and uh, you will get uh, the ultimate proof of creation. So. We'll see you guys next week, Lord willing, Deo Valente. Thanks for joining us today. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom and through Adam's offense